Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be talking about all things Ernst Lubitsch with Chris Cassingham. Chris is a film programmer, curator, and lazy writer devoted to American cinema, both classic and contemporary. He currently lives in London, by day working in acquisition and distribution, and by night scheming new ways to screen new and undistributed independent American cinema across the pond. I recently sat down with Chris to discuss Lubitsch's comedic brilliance. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss the maestro, Ernst Lubitsch. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's, I'm so excited to talk about him. I've done a little introduction for you already, but tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you first discover Lubitsch's work and what drew you to his films in the first place? I need to think about it because, I mean, and I have been thinking about it. I think there's sort of two discoveries, one sort of unconscious and one very much conscious discovery. I think probably the unconscious discovery was seeing the shop around the corner mm-hmm. as I think probably a young teenager. I know my parents liked the film and it was their sort of like, I guess, Christmas classic uh, James of the James Stewart genre, mm-hmm. um, other rather than It's a Wonderful Life. And so I, I do remember seeing that film when I was younger, but not knowing what it meant that it was an Ernst Lubitsch film. I probably didn't even know that it, what, I probably didn't register that it was an Ernst Lubitsch film. Mm-hmm. And so my conscious discovery of Ernst Lubitsch was, I think probably, I don't know, like four years ago when I really started getting into film and film history, uh, I, I, but just by watching things, I was able to put, you know, the pieces together. And I was like, and I saw to be or not to be. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm seeing, I'm seeing similar names. I'm seeing similar credits down the line. I'm like, so I, I, I began to put things together. And then because Ernst Lubitsch is Ernst Lubitsch, you very quickly get a sense of what his movies are like. Like a select few of like directors from classic Hollywood, his films truly have a stamp on them, his own personal stamp. And so that's, that was, that's really, I guess, a summary of like my, my journey with Lubitsch. It was a a subconscious and a conscious discovery. That's so cool. And then when you, I guess, returned to the shop around the corner, when you sort of realized who he was and you kind of figured out his style, did you approach it in sort of a different way? I think so. I mean, having gone through like two years of film grad school, having just finished that, I sort of don't watch movies the same anymore and yeah. that has its benefits and drawbacks but <laughs> uh, so I actually the last time I I watched The Shop Around the Corner for the first time in a very long time about a year and a half ago having you know having been in grad school so I was watching it differently but I was watching it intellectually I guess a little bit more intellectually but also with a stronger love and appreciation of Lubitsch's films mm-hmm. so it sort of balances out and I like I, I there's no diminishment in my enjoyment so 
Yeah, it only enhances it. Yeah. The best of both worlds, truly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I can sympathize. Film school, definitely. It's hard to turn off like that analytical mindset when you've been programmed to like think of movies that way. I can totally relate. I think that's why like when I'm not doing my work, I love like soap operas and like melodrama because it's just like you can kind of switch your brain off a little bit. I know I need to find something that's just a little bit you know tangential to you know film to as a, as a true outlet but i i know i'm still enjoying it i can turn i can i'm still able to turn that part off when i need it <laughs> that's helpful to have that skill that's for sure <laughs> lubich is such an interesting character because he was also he began his career as like an actor he obviously trained with like uh victor arnold in the early 1910s and then he moved on to work with max reinhardt and then he before he became like a a steady director he began to like supplement his income by appearing in in film productions and to me it always he always seems like such a, a generous director to work for obviously I'm not an actor so I don't really I'm still observing that world from the outside but do you think that background sort of affected his relationship with his actors and how do you think like what do you think his approach was to his his performers and his sort of his crew and the people he worked with I think yeah, I think his background as an actor definitely gives him a certain, like you said, generosity with his actors. And it's rare that you find any sort of negative comments about Lubitsch's work from his actors. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't professionally get, or like personally, sorry, if, even if they didn't personally get along all that well, yeah. uh, they were always complimentary of his work on set. And I'm thinking of Mary Pickford, who he directed yeah. in a, at least one film that weren't really successes and that she isn't particularly proud of as yeah. film, but she's still complimentary, so complimentary of the way he worked with her. And he also had the sort of an, an audacious um, method of directing in that he always acted out scenes himself mm -hmm. on set yeah. as direction as his his notes were just to just let me do it and you'll see how i want it because i mean his his he, i think he always he it's well known that he always sort of struggled with english mm -hmm. and i think he found i think he he used the the medium of acting his body as the vehicle to sort of sidestep that insecurity a little bit and i think it's a strength Absolutely. It makes the actor feel so much more at home on set. And I think I remember when I was researching To Be or Not To Be, I think Robert Stack said that he was having trouble with the scene. He didn't really understand the comedy and Lubitsch acted it out so um, emphatically, like sort of over the top to really hammer home, you know, what was funny about it. And for Robert Stack, that was like an aha moment. And like he made him see the film and the storyline in a different way. And that's to me, just speaks to Lubitsch's his generosity as a as a director yeah what a gift to be able to like have the film unlocked in a new way for you another story that i love is um uh with nanachka i think when they were sort of in the pre-planning phase i think garbo was called to the mgm for a meeting and she wouldn't get out of her car and so instead of canceling the meeting lubich got in the passenger seat and just like talked to her for like two hours and he really wanted to put her at ease and make her trust him. And I think that just just speaks to his character. I did not know that anecdote. That's interesting, but it, that does seem like him. And I think that also like, it translates to his his collaborations with 
you know, let's say Sam Raffelson and Hans Dreyer, who he worked with over the course of his career, um, how do you think they like yeah, uh, yeah. contributed to his style and his sensibility? Yeah, there are lots of little like quotes from Sam Raffelson and Hans Crawley about how they, the, the, the collaboration of the writing process was like essential and that the Lubitsch touch, the quote unquote Lubitsch touch mm -hmm. can be seen from those early stages. It's not necessarily um, something that magically happens on set. And I think that's a really interesting, to know that is adds like an interesting dimension to the films in that it just sort of, it, it makes his work feel richer and it's not, it's not just some light bulb that happens in the moment. And it, I think I, I find it nice to know that there is time and effort and like it, it, the, the Lubitsch touch is a, a long process that sometimes happens spontaneously in moments and finds its way into the film. Um, and other times it's sort of painstaking and with lots of back and forth between him and his writers who he, and he famously never took writing credits, even though his writing partners say that he was, you know, 50-50 in the process, which is also, again, his generosity. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a long running sort of acknowledgement between his writers and, and Lubitsch that mm -hmm. they were really equal in the process, but that Lubitsch respected the the role and the effort of the writer so much and he knew and because he knew the uh difficulties of like the system and the the business of classical Hollywood mm -hmm. that it would be the only respectful thing to do to honor the work that was done is to not also give himself credit for the writing because those credits meant everything back then especially especially in screenwriting which was it, it, that's such a difficult and like minefield of a department to work for yeah. so it, it again just speaking to his generosity like that's just it's really a very unique quality about him absolutely and I, to that point too he was also one of the only directors who ran his own studio i think it was in 1935 if i'm not mistaken 34 35 uh, in late, in, in I think early 1935, um, mm. yeah, after the Merry Widow, he was had a sort of dry spell and was offered the position and took it because, yeah, the, the, the projects weren't really coming up and he saw it as a, a, a neat challenge that I think he probably, not mistakenly, it's not necessarily a mistake, but maybe naively or, and it's, it's could be, it could have been him writing high on his own fumes a bit thinking he could bring the Lubitsch touch to the entire Paramount lot. Yeah. Which, that would be great, <laughs> but a bit ambitious. It's very um, ambitious. Yeah, yeah, it's not a style that can be easily transposed to um, an industrial mode of filmmaking. Yeah, much less to, I mean, not even one one other filmmaker talking about like some of his uh, later works. Absolutely. You can't have the Lubitsch touch to necessarily one film without him on it. Yeah, much less an entire studio. So it was ambitious. And that's not to say that there were, weren't were good things produced under him. I think of mm. uh, Desire with Gary Cooper and Marlena Dietrich, direct, uh, Frank Borzage film, which is mm. a, a, a nice film. And Borzage is one of my favorites, but- He's amazing, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't the, the greatest period for Paramount. And I think probably Lubitsch would be <laughs> the first to agree. 
I reread um, Scott Ammon's wonderful book, um, Ernst Lubitsch, Laughter in Paradise, which for those of you listening, I think it's available for free on archive.org if you want to read it. Uh, but he said something to the effect of like, I was never fully in control for a year or less. It's no real like test of executive value. If I'd been given the chance, you know, longer then that would have told the story. And I think that's, that's very true, right? Like yeah. you can only do so much when you have to work within that exist, existing infrastructure. He knows the system. He, he was aware that, you know, the job of studio head, you don't make an impact in a year and a half or two years or however long he held the post. So yeah, it's a, a bit of a, I get a bit of a shame in a, in a sense, because one wonders maybe what could have come from that, mm -hmm. but also his next film was Angel, which is <laughs> the greatest film ever made, my favorite movie of all time. So. Is it? Oh, okay. It is. <laughs> well, I guess, explain, why do you like it so much? Oh, because it's just such a, it's just a, a surprise of a film. And in the books I've read on Lubitsch, his, the films that veered more straightforwardly towards drama tended to also be period pieces and a bit more yeah. epic in scale. Yeah. So Angel is just sort of an outlier and coming between Bluebeard's eighth wife <laughs> and uh, The Merry Widow, it's just like, where did this sort of lightning bolt come from? And I guess this is a podcast about screwball comedies, so this yeah. isn't a podcast for, for Angel, um, but just to like stake my claim as the Angel's number one fan, like that's a quietly radical, like feminist mm -hmm. film, and it's just, and Marlena Dietrich had her like most radiant ever, oh, I think. She's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I did I, I did a whole video essay on the the film in class, and I got to introduce a screening of it. Um, Amazing! So it was like I've had, I had a whole love affair with Angel in 2022. So I guess going back to that Lubitsch touch, I mean, what do you think of that phrase? Do you do you think it has like value? Do you think it's affected the way we sort of engaged with his films? I think it does. I, I think it. I, th I think there both is value and in it, and I think it has affected the way we engage with his films mm -hmm. because we're still in the process of reevaluating some classic Hollywood directors' you know filmographies. Mm -hmm. Not every director has gotten that sort of reassessment and reevaluation that maybe they deserve. Mm -hmm. And I think the Lubitsch touch, which was essentially a marketing gimmick, yeah. a marketing tool but not a totally untrue one because they do have that, the sort of, and it's, I, and I love that I can't describe it totally. That's the whole beauty of it. And that's the whole point is that you can't quite describe it. You just have yeah. to go watch his films and yeah. then you go watch some lesser ones. And then you come back to Lubitsch and you're like, this there's, it's just got the, it's got the sauce. It's <laughs> the sauce and it's, it's, they do have just this sort of ineffable like quality about them that, that, is all the more powerful because you can't put it into words. It would be, it's good that you can't put it into words, I think. Quite. It almost detracts from the, the magic of it if you can fully describe it. Cause you know, when you see it, it's like a little wink, but it's like something that you can't really yeah. put into like a concise sentence, which is so brilliant. I mean, there are sort of reductions of it. It's the, mm -hmm. you know, the elliptical narrative structure and the, you know, he like, 
Mary Pickford, I think, was the one who described him as like a director of doors instead of actors. Yes. Although she's so complimentary of him, she's like, he's better at directing doors. And again, <laughs> that's sort of a reduction of what the Lubitsch touch is. But then when you do see the way he directs action mm -hmm. out of sight of the viewer, often behind closed doors, it is just like, well, there it is. And yeah. I, I rewatched Nanochka last night and the, the scene where... Uh, oh gosh, the, the names Bulianov and Kapowski and the third one are ordering food after they shortly after they arrive at the hotel and they're ordering food and the waiter comes in with champagne and that you hear their their yells increase and then the cigarette girl comes in and they <laughs> are even more excited and then she leaves sort of flustered and you're like, oh God, what happened? Did they were, were their laughs like harassing her and then she leaves and comes back with two more. It's just like and all, again, all of this you don't see except for when they leave the room. So it is, and I guess in that long rambling sentence is the only way you can sort of describe this. You can only describe the Lubitsch touch by just walking someone through the scene. You have so to again, watch it to get it, like, yeah. You have to watch it to get it. And that's yeah. why it works. Yeah, that's why Absolutely. it works. And I think also too, sort of playing into that, it's his very clever use of of like objects and going off of Nanachka, her Garbo's hat is like a symbolic of her sort of character development. It's nothing that is huge to the plot, but it's also, it's still ultimately very significant in like a subtle way. Exactly, yeah. He just has a gift for applying his larger ideas on something small and tangible, whether it is a door or a ridiculous hat mm -hmm. that puts that it sort of locks the film in, I guess. Mm -hmm. Nanachka wouldn't be all that different if the, the minuscule subplot of her getting this hat wasn't in there, but that it is in there makes the film all the more rich mm -hmm. and complex because yeah. it's both a silly gimmick about just an objectively strange hat and also <laughs> like an actually complex a kind of elucidation of his ideas about the push and pull between capitalism and Marxism mm -hmm. and thus between the conflict between like romance and duty. Um, anyway, so it's just like, it's it's like levels of like complexity all the way from debates of between capitalism and Marxism to like, this is a silly hat and they all through this touch or whatever are connected and made like totally coherent. It's a very elegant sort of texture that he always adds to his films that... Exactly. Um, and I think that's why, for me at least, why he's like so, such a good fit for Screwball, because Screwball comedy, of course, you can identify certain tropes and characteristics, you know, fast-paced dialogue, um, very sort of independent heroines, remarriage, but ultimately Screwball is like a, a vibe, it's an energy, it's not necessarily something that you all that has every one of those characteristics, but you know it when you see it, and I think that's why he's such a perfect fit for that genre. I, I mean, I'm gonna be honest, I, when we, when I like imposed myself on this <laughs> podcast and I said I want to talk about Lubitsch, I was doing it, and we only like at the time had like a brief like acknowledgement of like, oh yeah, it'd be great to talk about because obviously it's great to talk about Lubitsch. Always. I want to talk about Lubitsch and I think we're about to get in, we could, we can get into this debate now. Go on. His one out and out screwball comedy. Bluebeard's Ape Wife? Don't like at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, and I'm so happy to like talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, we can get in. Does like the film. 
but because it is his one film that is at least acknowledged explicitly as a screwball comedy. Yeah. And I think it's his like one failing as a director. Whereas I'm interested to talk about elements of screwball comedy that exist within his other romantic comedies. Because mm -hmm. screwball comedy and romantic comedy are different. Oh, absolutely. They're they exist, in, they exist in parallel with very frequent but brief intersections. But they are different. And Lubitsch makes romantic comedies, I think. But that's why I was. That's why I find it so interesting to talk about. Anyways, I know Bluebeard's Eighth Wife's interest. I actually rewatched it recently in preparation for this because I know we we had this little conversation about it before. And I think what's interesting, the first half is perfect. I think, and I think that's it's a like great the first act. Yeah, it's like the best meet cute scene probably like in classical yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Um, I understand though. Like I totally. I mean, it's definitely not up there among the best screwball comedies, I think. And my problem with it, although I do ultimately love it, I think it's going back to what I said earlier. It it, it tries to be screwball by adding in certain screwball elements, but it doesn't establish that tone from the outset. So it's a little inconsistent that way. What are your thoughts about it? I agree with you in that it's an incredible meet cute. Mm -hmm. And one of the best uses of Edward Everett Horton yeah. in a Lubitsch film. Yeah. I think up there, second or third to Angel and maybe Trouble in Paradise. Mm. So I'm all, all on board with the meet cute. I'm all on board with Edward Everett Horton. My issues come later when you start to see Gary Cooper reveal himself to not be a good fit for Lubitsch and not really a good fit for this character, I think. Mm -hmm. He's done great work in other screwballs, like- Ball of Fire. Yeah, and mm -hmm. Ball of Fire, obviously like incredible because he's playing, I'm not a Gary Cooper expert. I have like not read a biography or anything, but I, and so I don't know if like, he's a total like dweeb. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so like, well, Sorry. the millionaire playboy in Bluebeard's Eighth Wife is just, it does not vibe. No. That's but it's why he's excellent in Ball of Fire because he's playing a big, hot, tall dweeb. Yeah. And against the 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 Barbara Stanwyck like at her absolute best. And mm -hmm. this is this just is not his like metier. I think it's the the brutishness that is required of him is so tonally just uh, like off putting. And again, and it feeds into the overall issue I have with the film and ties into what we've been talking about kind of since the beginning is his generosity as a director. Mm -hmm. It's a very, and again, it's just, it's a, a cynical, gross uh, film. <laughs> and maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's the the uh, kind of the original material that it's sort of riffing on the, the taming of the shrew sort yeah. of thing, but it's, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. And yeah, I wish and then when he's spanking her, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that character, that millionaire, millionaire playboy character, ultimately you need more bravado than what Gary Cooper is able to bring. In one of the books I read on Orson Welles, he made some comment how Gary Cooper was sort of so unremarkable in person, but he comes alive on screen for some reason. But there's still sort of this understated quality about him that I don't know if it necessarily translates 
that well to this character like it does let's say he's a great fit in like design for living he has that like every man sort of earthy yes. quality that you need for that role but yeah i definitely agree that in this this type of character you need someone with a little more i don't know hubris a little bit i mean like someone like i mean someone like frederick march would have been mm. great your eighth wife i mean he yeah. had just done like nothing sacred which is like obviously not a millionaire playboy but the sort of brutishness yeah. and the physicality that comes in comes about in nothing sacred mm -hmm. i think maybe would have translated better here and like again just just like a misfire that luckily was course corrected the next an film. anomaly yeah let's just <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's. I think my favorite part of Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, though, it's just like such a little thing. But at the beginning, where he's up looking in the department store window and it says, "Sahabla Espanol, English spoken here, yeah. American understood." It's like brilliant. No, it is, and then like again, that's it's both too simplistic and also exactly right. That's the mm -hmm. Lubitsch touch, yeah. and that was that was a thing. There's a, a, a direct anecdote about writing that little scene in the how how did Lubitsch do it book by um joseph mcbride mm -hmm. where they talk about um how they were at lubish's house writing the these sort of opening scenes and lubish went to the bathroom i can't remember who was saying that lubish does his best writing on the toilet because he they're, they're trying to figure out you know what to sort of say about this store that he's about to enter and they had the the first three sort of lines french spoken english under english spoken or whatever mm -hmm. and then which comes out of the bathroom and he says i've got it we need to add american understood afterwards and it's so it's again just one of those it's emblematic of just like what he brings to the writing process and not necessarily it wasn't a thing he implemented on set in his direction it came from the beginning clever quirkiness that it's just yeah. You, yeah you can't replicate that the department store sequence is just magical like I cannot deny it that it's like a perfect short film. <laughs> yeah, no, if you, yeah, that's like the, it's the best part of the film for sure. Yeah. Of course, Lubitsch was German, but he immigrated to the United States in late 1922. So how do you think he blended those two sensibilities in his films? I think, well, I think he took to the Hollywood system incredibly mm -hmm. well and mm -hmm. So I think there's no denying his kind of how apt he was to make good work under the system. But I also think that he, I mean, yeah, it's sort of undeniable that he brought a sort of cosmopolitan sensibility to a sort of stuffy conservative system as well. Mm -hmm. And while it gave him trouble with the censors sometimes, it was something he was ultimately celebrated for in whatever sort of under whatever studio he's working for, usually Paramount. And that's why his he sort of invented Paris Paramount yeah and just that sort of that again that Euro European continental cosmopolitan sensibility that mm -hmm. allows him to get away with a lot of his racier more mm -hmm. provocative subject matter so yeah. I mean it is like a sort of almost a cliche at this point that's like if you just set your film in Paris if you want to like get away with stuff but it has actual industrial you know Benefit, yeah, it's, it's, it's a benefit yeah. to it to do so. It's like, yeah. it's like doing so is a cog in the machine that is classical Hollywood. It's mm -hmm. not just like, oh, all these sort of provocative films happen to be set in Paris. What a coincidence! Like, no, it's like an actual like 
choice and mm -hmm. uh, like a creative loophole that mm -hmm. was exploited. Um, yeah, absolutely. I so, think Scott Iman was the one, he, he said something to the effect of American audiences can sort of ascribe that like otherness in terms of morality because they are, these films are set in Europe. So while they may not necessarily maybe agree with the way certain topics are represented, they can sort of detach themselves from it. So it is a very clever choice. I, I guess that that's that is also what helps to make some of the less less pleasant as pleasant aspects of like Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, I guess, sort of digestible is because, oh, it's happening way out there in in crazy on the on the Riviera. It's it, you could, again the sort of detachment that you can have to mm -hmm. what is sometimes quite brutal, uh, like you know scenes of like violence. Um, is, is just it's it's a means to you know push the yeah. boundaries i rewatched. i mean i rewatched quite a few um the one that i had revisited and i hadn't seen it probably in like over 10 years was the smiling lieutenant and it just mm. i just forgot how beautifully irreverent it is i mean what other movie could you have a, a number where you have jazz up your lingerie like that's just <laughs> yeah <laughs> brilliant i know it's just, yeah, it, again, I, I haven't seen that in a while either, but like those, it's this, uh, the Smiling Lieutenant and that were the made sort of back to back, the Smiling Lieutenant and the Love Parade, mm. which are just, uh, they're just like, they're so delightful. Yeah. And even though Maurice Chevalier gives me the heebie-jeebies, <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know anything about, again, I, I don't know anything about him personally. I don't know mm. Iota about his life, <laughs> but I think him and Jeanette McDonald are like just just so delicious together. Absolutely, there's like a like a going back to what we were saying, like this like wink in his performance. Like you you kind yes. of he's in on the joke. He he knows that you know he's yes. in on it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a little intense, I will say, when he's like singing directly to the camera and he's like constantly smiling. It's like okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's the only the only actor in a Lubitsch film I've ever seen who, maybe because he was so established at that time, had a, such an established connection with the audience. And again, I don't know anything about him, but my guess is that he had such an established connection to an adoring audience that mm -hmm. Lubitsch probably was like, I can use this and allow him to directly address the people who are like, you know, in awe of him. And he didn't use that for anyone else. He could have used that for like Marlene to teach. I mean, it would have ruined like the films, but like it works. For, it has to work with the film. So like a silly little confectionery mm -hmm. musical, like the Love Parade and the Smiling Lieutenant, it works for that. But it also like, I doubt if a different actor was in it, it, he would have been able to get away with it. It's Chevalier times Lubitsch that Absolutely. makes it work. Absolutely, it creates that intimacy with his with his persona ultimately and like he, it pulls you in even if whether you find it a little off-putting or not but that's exactly what the films are about as well yeah. i mean it's like oh we're gonna get intimate we're gonna we're we're gonna make some triangles we're gonna make a sometimes a love you know rectangle a love pentagon mm -hmm. like we're making all the shapes absolutely it's like him saying to you like get ready buckle up like you're yes. you're in for a ride sort of thing and and i mean they do there's there's i love that movie it's I, going back to the little the, the discussion we had about objects, my favorite part of that film is when they're 
talking about, you know, we're going to have dinner or maybe breakfast. And then it fades to the shot of uh, their his butler frying eggs. And it's just like this perfect shorthand of, you know, what happened the night before. It's just... He loves to use breakfast as uh, a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> These two people got it on last night. Exactly. Here are the eggs to prove it. In film, film after film after film, it's breakfast the next morning. Yeah. It, and it's all you need to know. And, and the way they're eating the breakfast. Yeah, you know. know something happened. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I <laughs> saw The Merry Widow. I, I watched that for the first time sort of in preparation for this. I hadn't seen it. And I loved, I mean, it's towards the beginning. I loved the scene again with his just fascination with using objects to, like small objects to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. the beginning where the king realizes he's forgotten his belt. <laughs> he goes back to his room to get it. And again, just a combination of like the object and then the door closes and we don't see what goes on behind it. And he emerges with a belt. He tries to fasten it. He sees it smaller and it's because you know he just grabbed Maurice Chevalier's um, belt, uh, who and who was <laughs> snuck into his the the king's bedroom to go sleep with the queen right as he leaves. It's just everything you need to know, and it, I, I loved that detail. It's the perfect way to like tell. Yeah, it tells you everything you need to know without a, a long explanation. The no sex scene uh, discourse crowd really needs to get into Lubitsch because oh it would God. satisfy their every need. You don't have to see anything, but they're also like the sexiest movies in classic Hollywood. Absolutely. I mean, the shot in Travel in Paradise where you have the silhouette over top of the bed. So, like, I don't think there's a, a more perfect I'm shot on. in all of Hollywood cinema. Like, that's, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. I know, the it's not to get too off topic, but that the, the Puritanism that's rearing its head these days, especially in our generation, generation younger than us, it's, it's troubling. It's troubling. I mean, I mean, I'm and I'm sure we probably agreed on it on Twitter. I a few weeks ago, I think there was, I mean, it's always cropping up as discourse. Mm -hmm. I was like, these kids need to go back to classic Hollywood. There yeah. are so many incredible examples of red, hot, sexy goodness going yeah. on in the 30s mm -hmm. and even into the 40s. I mean, I, I remember thinking of like the last time I sort of commented on it. I was thinking of The More the Merrier mm -hmm. when... Joel McRae and Gene Arthur are sitting on the steps outside of their, their apartment. And yeah. they're just like the, the like having sex with each other's necks. And yeah. it's like the sexiest scene like I had ever seen up to it's, that point. I was like, it, it just sort of speaks to the, like, the magic that Lubitsch creates with his films. And again, like in the context of like the, you know, these, ki these kids want to reinstate the Hayes Code. Like, <laughs> The, the issues he had with the Hayes Code, or they're not like historic battles, I guess, with the Hayes Code because, mm -hmm. and it's a credit to him and his collaborators, they were so smart. Yeah. But sometimes they weren't even catching, the the code wasn't even catching their innuendo. So like, yeah, you would you would assume that they would have had so, so much trouble with all this racy material, but it, because they were doing it so cleverly, he doesn't have a sort of volatile, infamous history with the Hayes Code, actually. And that's a credit to like how creative he and his collaborator it takes uh, a master of to be able to sort of navigate the that terrain and i think i mean to that point like the not to get too much into like code history and being very nerdy but like they really paid attention to to sort of the overall tone of a film and sort of the broader message that um a filmmaker was trying to convey and so that allowed a filmmaker like lubitsch who was so sophisticated to sort of work things in because 
He was being subtle. Subtlety, man. I know. Who knew? Who freaking knew? <laughs> I guess to that point, though, can you, as a Lubitsch fan who knows his work so well, can you identify a difference in sort of his tone and style between like the pre-code era and the code era? Or do you think it's not that noticeable because of how skilled he was? I think the tone is working in conjunction with a very different, like, technical and formal approach mm. that I think that the, the I guess the shift in tone is maybe masked or even I'm not really discerning a big difference in tone because, because I think there's a big shift from essentially the Merry Widow Mm-hmm. On uh, the, for the, the Merry Widow between the, the three years be- between him his films Angel onwards, really formally and technically feels so different. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it left room for the tone to actually sort of at its foundation stay the same, but mm-hmm. take on a different quality when looked at in the like the sort of the totality of like what he was doing with the camera and everything, which became much more elegant and a bit more sophisticated and but also in a strange way more restrained mm-hmm. um i think and so i think maybe the effect of that is on the tone seeming a little bit more restrained as well mm-hmm. but i think if you really do like a real in-depth sort of content analysis of like what exactly these films post angel or like the nitty gritty of like what they're actually talking about and what sort of objectionable, quote unquote objectionable things they're really getting into. It's probably not all that much different yeah. than the pre-code films. The words they use to talk about it have to be different, yeah. but at the foundation, what they're talking about is really no different. I think my favorite example of that code era Lubitsch wink is uh, a conversation that Carol Lombard has with Robert Stack's character in To Be or Not To Be, and he says, Will you permit me to show you my plane? And then she... Oh my God, it's so good. (laughs) In the end, she's like, Lieutenant, this is the first time I've met a man who can drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes. And the look of glee on her face when she says it, it's like she's in ecstasy because she's found this man who can satisfy her sexually, but it's like so loaded. Robert Stack, what could be better? Exactly. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah, no, that's absolutely one of the best parts of To Be or Not To Be. It makes me cackle like a hyena every time I watch that. Another film, obviously, we have to tackle Trouble in Paradise. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. It's, I think, the most elegant sex comedy. Such finesse. And it, Mm -hmm. it, it, like, it smacks you in the face with sex from the opening title, but then in such a way that's, I guess it speaks to that subtlety that he was able to weave throughout his films. I mean, the opening shot of the the, the title superimposed on, on the bed, like, yes, you know what you're and getting into. Immediately followed by the garbage being dumped onto the gondola and it's like <laughs> trouble, but, or yeah. So it's like just an exquisitely just rapid intersection of all these contradictions that maybe because they're happening so quickly, but also because they're just comedically sound it's like a, it's like euphoric how well it how good it feels when that film opens i think and it happens in like a, a less than a minute it bombards you it's just like this exactly pacing of just one hit after another it's perfect not exhausting and like yeah. that the the canal shot it's like this undercutting of the ordinary with this little wink that he is able to do so well and I think mm. Lubitsch even said, like, in terms of style, nothing will ever be as good as Trouble in Paradise. 
Possibly not, because yeah, it really it it really blends like the the sophistication with his it has some of like his more kind of audacious like camera work mm -hmm. and really not afraid to just be a little bit extravagant. And I mean, it is a film about extravagance. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a film about aspiring to extravagance as well. Mm -hmm. And so a, a, a film that also matches those sort of in like those concerns in like the sort of the content of the film with a visual style that also feels akin to it is so smart and it just makes it a complete work. There's, I love as that. As well for a 1932 film that if you watch some other films, even from 1932, some people were still figuring out what the heck they were doing with mm -hmm. whole, how do we hear people and also move the camera? Like, yeah, yeah I, I, every time I, every once in a while, I you watch an, an, like a new film from 1932 and I'm like, oh, wow, people, some people really still hadn't gotten the hang of this. Yeah. For four years into sound, not Lubitsch though. Like he, he I mean, mastered he, that style so perfectly. It's a masterpiece. I mean, I, I hate using those kinds of trite words, but I mean, it is. It's it's every descriptor sort of feels trite in trying to describe like Lubitsch. I think the. I mean, it's it's an elegant film. The dialogue is it's like almost like lyrical, and it's in the way everything unfolds and. It's just, it's just perfect. Um, and the characters, I mean, they're, I love that they're like so self-conscious about what they're doing and that they're always like, I think, I think it was Iman who says like, they're almost on the precipice of parody, but they never go over that line. Well, yeah. I mean, even with like Kay, like Kay Francis's uh, Madame Colette is supposed mm -hmm. to, I mean, the, her first appearance, you expect her to be the sort of cliched, I guess, like quote, boss bitch. And like she's supposed to be this businesswoman who's like cold and hard, but it's also it's like it's Kay Francis. So she's also like, well, she's not the best actor by any means with Lubitsch. She is like butter. And at her like the, her elegance, which was her greatest strength as an actor, put to its absolute best use yeah. in this film by first undercutting the, like undercutting it. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that just his ability to pick out the best qualities of his actors. And that, I guess there's a reason why he kept returning to, let's say a Miriam Hopkins so often mm -hmm. because he- sort of, He was also in love with her. Yeah, it <laughs> complicates <laughs> yeah, Big old crush on Miriam Hopkins, but- <laughs> yeah. His casting was always, you know, spot on. He knew how to sort of play with the expectations that audiences had with these with these actors and sort of um use them in very interesting ways like with the example you said of Kay francis yeah it's it's really sort of remarkable how i find melvin douglas as well sort of just like a sort of a wet rag in anything besides a lubitsch film <laughs> i guess i like i guess he's okay in like a woman's face but again that's cukor who's also like a master of knowing how to work with actors yeah. so it's like that's like you can't really count that but, but I, I really sort of only like him in his Lubitsch films and I find him sort of pretty unremarkable otherwise. Yeah, so he really just knew how to find what made someone work mm -hmm. and really enhance it and use it in like a smart, unexpected way. I mean, moving on to uh, a film like Design for Living, I know the leading George and Thomas, I think if I remember correctly from what I was reading, the original the characters were written for Leslie Howard and Ronald Coleman you think I don't know how that would have worked with them because 
you know, Gary Cooper and Frederick March, they bring, as we were talking about before, this like everyman quality okay. to the film. And so I think the others may have been like too suave, too sort of self-conscious and yeah. that performance. I don't know. No, I think you're absolutely right. And they, they, they need, I think the characters, I haven't read the play, mm -hmm. but I think they, at least for the success of the film, mm -hmm. Success of the film sort of hinges on like a sort of again like an everyman, but also sort of American kind of down home sensibility that is played up for the contrast of them being in Paris. Like it it needs and Leslie Howard and Ronald. I mean, I don't Ronald Coleman was he a Brit? But I don't think yeah. but he was. So, oh, he was. So yeah. I mean, so they're they're those are two Brits, and I mean, I guess when you think of a Noel Coward play, like I mean, obviously, I think that would make sense but not for a, a Lubitsch film where you need these kind of Americans sort of not really fish out of water, but they, they should like not belong. Yeah. They don't have that refinement that, that the, that, you know, Howard yeah, and Coleman have, right? Yeah. You need that sort of brutish masculinity, I guess, for it to work. Exactly. And who better to have that in two very different kind of iterations than with Gary Cooper and Frederick March. What are your thoughts on design for living? I, I mean, I love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and it's it's so it's so like it's a cliche like the opening sign the opening kind of word wordless scene in the train is mm -hmm. just masterful the again it has an incredible morning after breakfast scene another uh, another Lubitsch touch that's sort of talked about anecdotally in the uh, McBride book is the cloud of dust that erupts from the uh mat not really the mattress but the, their little couch in their <laughs> flat when <laughs> Miriam Hopkins plops down on it. And it's like, it doesn't need that. It's so minute, but it it says that puff of dust says absolutely everything that the film, it summarizes the whole film in a uh, sense. Yeah. Just in her plopping down and an eruption of dust. Like it's <laughs> just so brilliant. Um, obviously, I'd like it to be gayer, um, but it's gay. I mean, you know, they got away with some stuff, but you know, I mean, that's just my personal. <laughs> it's such an interesting film because it's so much about like this, like liberation of self and like her Absolute life refusal to 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 adhere to you know society's expectations. Absolutely, and not, and not just like not just like fighting. Not it's not like an inherent thing. It's mm -hmm. not. It's not like a Betty Davis who is sort of in her soul. Yeah. Doesn't fit society's expectations. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind that is like calculated. And it's like these characters, maybe phonally, maybe it's, maybe it's phony desire to not fit society's expectations because their attempts to do so are sort of failures, but they yeah. keep coming back to it. So it's almost like they're not meant to be such rebels. Yeah, it's like this tension between, you know, what I, what's expected of me and like what I want to do and what I can't do. And so it's like this always like this push and pull. That Which, what a, and what a beautiful sort of, maybe not direct metaphor, but what a beautiful sort of evocation of Lubitsch's own place within the Hollywood system. Yeah. This sort of rebel working within the machine. Mm -hmm uh yet also the greatest exemplar of it of the machine yeah. yet someone who constantly is at odds with it yeah you're pushing back on a system that you've mastered and you're always like one step ahead but you have to like who will work. be in the 
and who will be in the future upheld as the greatest example of when the system sort of gets it right. Exactly. As if he wasn't like like giving them hell like the entire time. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, so I th I think the yeah, those three characters are um beautiful sort of examples of that. I think I I I last watched it um over the holidays. I love it. I mean, and and but each time I'm like and it is again like the, the sort of perennial problem of grappling with classic Hollywood in the 21st century, no matter how much you love it and can intellectually kind of think through it, it's like, oh, it's a little sexist. And yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, I wish Miriam Hopkins like just wouldn't sort of subsume her own desires for theirs. And it's just yeah. like, it's 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 those, the, the constant sort of battle against expectations mm -hmm. that we have for art we love yeah. And the realities of the time in which they were made. Yeah. Um, and it's something McBride comments on in his own sort of analysis of the film. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that uh, I think Sam Rafelson commented on, I think later in the 70s when he was giving a talk about it, he's like, and he, and he also says that I think about Bluebeard's Eighth Wife. It's like, he's, he was talking in 1977 and the, like, the, the full fledge of like, uh, women's feminine, lib. like yeah. yeah, women's lib. And it's like, it is just again. It's it's sort of those contradictions that you have to live with. But again, it's just like so magical, and it does sort of end on a. a, a it, it sort of ends on a resolution that you can. I think I can get behind. But again, the process there is like, oh, Miriam, just oh, you just, want, I know you want more do, for her, right? For yourself, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of, yeah. yeah, no, it's hard. It's detach your own sense of your own, your own ideology from the idea uh, from the ideology that the film that you're you're watching engaging with is entrenched in um yeah. it's like a constant you have to be very conscious of it i think when you're watching films from this period to yeah, sort of yeah. not project your own morality <laughs> on exactly. the storyline right that's yeah. it's a product of a different time yeah absolutely it's one of the yeah just a, the constant sort of yeah, I, I mean, I, you sort of have a, have a constant vigilance about mm -hmm. how you're watching classic Hollywood, and that's goes for like your own personal enjoyment, but also in like how you deal with it professionally. Like, mm -hmm. as you do all the time, and as I want to do more of, like, how do you like professionally engage with these films? How do you present them to people who may have not who have not seen them, yeah, and are coming in with preconceived if um, sensible reservations <laughs> about kind of what's kind of like social values are going to be like they're going to be bombarded with yeah in these films and so that's why Lubitsch he's such a great person to use as an introduction to classic Hollywood though like <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I used to teach um films since the 1940s I began my class with to be or not to be and I was always so interested because none of the students had ever watched this film before. So I was interested to see how the comedy would land with this group of, you know, 18 to 21 year olds. And obviously, I mean, that film is very provocative. Um, and you could tell always their laughter at the beginning is kind of nervous. Like, should I be laughing along with this? And then by the end, it's like they, the film has hooked them and they sort of, they they get it. I mean, this is so unrelated, but I, yesterday, I mean, the BFI is having a full season, a three month season of their, the sight and sound top 100 mm -hmm. films they're mm -hmm. showing every film in the top 100 
And I just, I did it yesterday at Double Bill of Sherlock Jr. and City Lights. Ooh, amazing. It was, and I, yeah, I mean, amazing. First <laughs> time seeing both of them on the big screen. And it was a Saturday morning at 11.45 and there were tons of kids there. Oh, and it was the best. It was the best. Like all of these four-year-olds, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, whatever, heckling at at Buster, like teetering on the edge of the cliff uh -huh. and then falling into like the cacti and then, you know, being pummeled with the water from the water tank and the train. Like it's so, it is just amazing to see these old, like old films kind of spark something in people who have never seen them. And it's not always the case that that happens. I mean, it's, it's not rare, I guess. And kids are, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin obviously are going to work with kids like they're hilarious and that's yes. but it is like just one example of just how complex it is and how many different ways people can engage with classic Hollywood having never seen it before Absolutely. so that's yeah, a little bit of a tangent but yeah I think it's so important I, I love hearing that young people are being introduced to these films it, oh, it was the happy. best I mean I and I think probably for like five seconds I was like oh my god all these kids this is what I get for coming to like a movie at eleven forty-five on a Saturday but <laughs> two minutes in I was like yeah you see the movie through you know fresh eyes in a way oh, yes absolutely yeah so I guess Nanach you said you watched it again last night, last night yeah did anything stick out for you in this recent viewing? What stuck out to me was rather than, I mean, and it is because of the film, but it was my own, and going back to what we talked about, having to adjust your sort of expectations of what is like socially, politically, like values of the time in which these films were made. Mm -hmm. I found myself, I, and I watched Anachka, I don't know. This is only my second time seeing it. Mm -hmm. and I watched it for the first time probably four years ago. A lot has happened in my the last four years for me. And I found myself totally reevaluating my sort of closed-minded dismissal of like, well, this film loves capitalism so much. <laughs> um, to uh, to just of uh, just like, well, this movie is just good though. Yeah. And it this movie is so good. And the it's sort of discussion about i mean i was i was sort of alluding to it before it's discussion about like the push and pull between capitalism and marxism romance and duty silly hat utilitarian hat mm -hmm. all as parallel levels of the same idea mm -hmm. is so much more complex more complex than i gave it credit for when i first saw it yeah so the sort of ideological like prickliness I felt with its sort of dismissal of like Marxism as like yeah. um I was like wait um I I was just like whatever this time and it was it's and so I was just like delirious with joy I think it's interesting too to think about that tension within the context of you know a Hollywood studio system so to me in some way it's like Lubitsch saying well I'm gonna give you exactly what you want and sort of being very conscious of like the system in which he was working so it like sort of adds a, a further layer to like the the film sort of like self-consciousness and i guess and it's it's obvious now but like lubitsch is obviously hoping that people watching it whether in 1939 or in 2023 me mm -hmm. are like frustrated at the uh, sort of conflict between it 
That's the whole point of the film. Exactly. That's yeah. where the romance and the tragedy and the 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 just the beauty of the of it comes from is from that conflict, obviously. And it's like such a simple thing now. And I just I for some whatever reason did not give it the credit the, that credit when I first watched it. And I I was like, oh well, it's Nanachka. That's everyone's favorite. I love Angel and I still do Angel's my favorite. But like I, I was sort of approaching it in that sense when I first watched it. Yeah. Um so yeah, but um, Arbo is just in like transcendently good. That's what I was gonna say. He he brings something out of her that's so magical and yeah. it's like she she takes on this whole new sort of like depth. You wish yeah. she did more of that. Yeah, my absolute I mean, I would have favorite moments, like ask me five minutes from now and I, have to, I would have a different favorite moment. Mm -hmm. But as I'm speaking these words, my favorite moment in the film is when Melvin Douglas falls over in the diner when he's trying to get her to laugh. Yes. It's like he's telling these awful jokes and it's not working and then he falls over and she laughs. But the way he directs it is so brilliant in that you don't, it's again, it's the Lubitsch touch. It's so I'm having to explain the whole thing because you don't see you the moment where she. You don't see the moment where she turns. It's like it's it's, it's the way he edits it. Exactly. Yeah. He cuts to her mid laughter. Yeah. You don't. It, it's crucial, and I don't know exactly why it has to be that way, but it is that way, and I know that is why it works. Yeah. You don't see it like what she already laughing. Yeah. And it's the most just wonderful laughter. It doesn't feel hand or strained mm -hmm. or insincere acting laughing it feels like real laughter yeah and that's just why it's so perfect yeah yeah it's like this full-bodied sort of full body exactly yeah yeah. Full -bodied, like, yeah yeah you you totally believe it and i know they made it into like the publicity gimmick for the film but it and i think that's so reductive because it's like such a a good scene and just to sort of it's not just about the fact that garbo's laughing but it's like it's it's essential to that moment where she sort of, their relationship turns. Exactly, but it, again, that's emblematic of the Lubitsch touch in general being used as a marketing gimmick. Yeah. It, it, it treads that line as a gimmick as well as a legitimate, just ineffable quality of his filmmaking, mm -hmm. which I think is why, you know, I don't necessarily mind the reductive ways one has to talk about the Lubitsch touch. Yeah. Because I think it its power stays regardless of how often you touch about sorry talk about it in terms of you know the action behind doors and elliptical narrative and whatever it is whatever it is those little individual sort of technical things yeah there's I a sincerity power, to it still yeah yeah I think the power of it still stays no matter how reductively you talk about it because you can just watch the films and it <laughs> is made immediate again. So it's, yeah. that's why it's like, and yeah, I mean, all over this, the 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 uh, McBride book, it's like, a con he has this, uh, there's sort of a kind of unspoken conflict between like talking about the Lubitsch touch reductively and like being able to like actually talk about it in a complex way. And it's like, I think it works, it works both ways. It's a very nuanced sort of conversation that you, you have to keep addressing it, but it's yeah, so much exactly. more than the, just the phrase, right? Yeah. You brought up Melvin Douglas a while ago, but can you talk a little bit about the chemistry between him and Garbo and like what you think, you say he works best in Lubitsch films. Like, what do you think 
she brings out in him and what do you think Lubitsch brings out in Melvin Douglas? I think I'm gonna have to talk about Angel as well in this description because I think Nanashka and Angel are two extremely different characters played by extremely different actors. They bring out a almost like a childlike curiosity mm -hmm. in the characters that Melvin Douglas is playing and I guess in Melvin Douglas. The the allure of them, mm -hmm. the sort of the kind of otherworldly alien allure of them, which is tied into Lubitsch's own slightly problematic view of like women as like sort of unknowable creatures, which is like a bit icky, but like he does it so well that it's like I I, I get it, whatever. Yeah. But um, I think they they sort of bring out that, and it, and it renders Melvin Douglas almost like a giddy child. Like yeah. when he um, is trying to like impress her with, again, like with the jokes in the diner, but also with like his approach to like finagling his way into the Eiffel Tower and like giving her facts about it and uh, like and like showing her things on the map. Like that quality in Melvin Douglas is, I really only see it in Lubitsch films and I'm, I'm, I'm very much drawn to it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, I think that's essentially what, I think the, the key to what, it's kind of working in Lubitsch films in terms of Melvin Douglas. He's got like a very suave, cynical persona, but I think you need it in those kind of dynamics, right? It to to balance yeah. that that version of femininity. Yeah, and he's certainly more cynical in Ninochka than he is in Angel. Mm -hmm. um, but again, yeah, the, the cynicism in Nanachka is essential because like of the, the the narrative sort of intricacies required as well because he's like playing this gigolo who's yeah. trying to screw them out of their the jewels and whatever. Yeah. So like that that's like also an essential like counterbalance to the and and makes the giddy childlike affection he has for Nanachka all the more all the more like Believable, resonant. Right? Yeah, all exactly. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, because it's it, the same sort of powers are working on Melvin Douglas as they are working on Nanachka, mm -hmm. on Garbo in this film, is that each of them are being sort of drawn out of their sort of entrenched characterizations. Yeah. Garbo, the dutiful communist. Yeah, and him Douglas, like sort of Douglas, the cynical sort yeah. of gigolo. Yeah. Yeah, they each, it's, it's not just a revelation about like this Nanachka character, it's also quietly... About also him. a revelation about him as well. Absolutely. You need those oppo opposing sort of forces to sort of uh, meet in the middle in a way. Yeah, definitely. And that's, and that's why that's why we, I mean, we talked about this briefly at the beginning of this conversation is that's why while Lubitsch only really made one screwball comedy, it's why his romantic comedies all sort of work as films to discuss anyways. Mm -hmm. in talking about screwball comedy yeah because i mean i think you'll agree as the expert on screwball comedies is that like while it, they're like a sort of the cliche sort of summary is like the battle of the sexes mm -hmm. it's not inaccurate it's about the these sort of fundamental differences between men and women that inspire chaos as well as like euphoric romance Absolutely. You need that tension that's, to create. That's at, that's at work in these Lubitsch films, even yeah. though they are not raucous screwball. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's why I, I, that's why I like wanted to talk about Lubitsch, even though he's not known as 
a screwball comedy director. Yeah, there's still that that element. You need that tension to create that the 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 growth in the characters, but also that electricity that you get that is very screwball. But so he's sort of working in the screwball margins in a way. He's sort of exactly yeah uh, adopting that sensibility without necessarily sort of immersing himself fully in that genre. Yeah. And that's why I like to switch gears a little bit to to be or not to be. It's it's not screwball. It's like a black comedy, obviously, but it's still, it has that sort of that tone that keeps yeah. it in that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's raucous and yeah. it's, and bonkers. And like, I've seen it, I don't know how many times I probably couldn't accurately summarize the plot of the film i'd have and i'd only be able i only upon watching it i'd be like oh yeah that's actually what happens like for the longest time it i don't know this is just not related but like for the longest longest time it took me forever to realize just the intricacies of lombard's sort of integration into the like the resistance yes so in the the bookstore scene when she like gives i for the longest time i had no idea she was in the resistance at this point. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. it, but but again, but just a brilliant use of off-screen action. Yeah. And like this is truly off-screen action because he just doesn't film anything. It's not just people doing things behind a door. He's just like, we're just skipping to this. They're yeah. already in. Yeah. But it'd be brilliant use of like what he can convey as having had as having happened already. Yeah. In, you don't need to see Robert's tag, you know, explaining, okay. you know, this is what you need to do, go here. Yes. And so it, it makes yeah. it just a like a delightful sort of like treasure hunt. It's, for it's like yeah. It's incredible. And the, I mean the the way they use her femininity is like this lure yeah, for exactly. the Seletsky. It's just brilliant. Yeah, especially and for someone who could not be more, who could probably not be more in control of her kind of own image and mm -hmm. her own power as an actor, as well as a character who knows exactly what effects she has on men. Absolutely. But are just a perfect pairing. Absolutely. She plays every single man in that character like a fiddle. Like everyone is seduced yeah. by her in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we talked about it already, the scene with uh, Robert Stack is just brilliant. What do you think yeah. of having Jack Benny as the lead? Well, I I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think I've seen another Jack Benny film. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really familiar with his comedy. But mm -hmm. what I've read about him is that he's he's like an explicitly a Jewish American comic. Yeah. Which was at the time... It's sort of just existing as that is bold and a statement. Yeah. So putting him in a film like this is an equally bold statement. Lubitsch knows exactly what having Jack Benny in that role means. Yeah. So he, you don't have to make the character explicitly Jewish. Yeah. He knows exactly, Lubitsch knows his audience exact is so well that he knows yeah. exactly what effect that's going to have on us or a contemporary audience. Yeah. So I think that's really important at a time when it was very, very difficult, nigh on impossible to even say the word Jew in an American film. I think Chaplin got away with it in The Great Dictator, mm -hmm. but that was sort of an exception, I think just due to Chaplin's sort of stature. 
And being um, who he is, yeah, exactly. Being who he is. Um, and so all, all the work is done, you know, through, you know, euphemism and like subtlety through um, the sort of the, oh the gosh. character that you, it's already like an established persona sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a character that was sort of established in Ninochka and Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. The name of the actor who is escaping me. Um, Felix Bressart? Yes, Felix Bressart. Yeah. yeah. The, the tall, it's, thin guy? Yeah, the tall, thin guy yeah, with the mustache. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he looks exactly the same in all three, but like, <laughs> so he, he gets, he, he hammers home the Jewishness of this film, yes. which is so, which is so critical through yeah. that character and having him, uh, you know, give the, uh, the recitations from Merchant of Venice and, you know, yeah. what you, what you are, I wouldn't eat. Like it, just these subtle things that, yeah, and that, it, that, that makes the political statement that absolutely. the film to make. Yeah. And the film, and I know. It's, so Jack Benny is a part of that as like, as himself, as like, is, a, is it just, mere like embodiment his mere being in this film is that political statement so i think that's important absolutely and i, I know that film when it was released obviously it came in march 1942 at the time when obviously the u.s had just entered world war ii and it was not necessarily it did well at the box office but it wasn't well received mm -hmm. by all critics and I, lubich wrote an op-ed and I think it was the New York Times where he said, like, you know, my Nazis, they've gone beyond the terror stage. They're sort of like these everyday evil people. And I know some of the criticism about the film was that, well, by portraying them in that human sort of way, you're downplaying their capacity for evil. But he's basically saying, no, they're even even more so because it is such a, a subtle exactly. sort of everyday thing. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, what a, what a very brave film to make like what I, I I sort of can't even wrap my head around the just it's sort of impossible to wrap your head around like what that film means mm -hmm. and meant at that time to someone like Lubitsch what a like what a privilege it would have been to sort of be privy to the conversations behind the making of that film like just I mean it's a piece of, it's a piece of like political history yeah um as well as just like one of the great artistic achievements of I don't know the 20th century like <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like a it's the perfect comedy for me I love it yeah yeah um I guess the last film we want to talk about before we kind of wrap up you mentioned Clooney Brown yeah I think one we have to favorites? talk about Clooney Brown. it's absolutely one of my favorites I, I think it's I can't I haven't seen enough silent films to maybe include any silence in my sort of ranking of Lubitsch films although mm. like I don't know. There are a couple that could probably like Forbidden Paradise. As I, I could probably include that in my like top five of all Lubitsch films. But I that a while ago, yes. <laughs> I had the it's it's rarely screened, and I saw the 2017 like 4K restoration of it uh, last year at the the Polish the London Polish Film Festival because it's oh, a Golden Agri. And so they did a screening of it and it's just an exquisitely beautiful film. And it's, <laughs> is probably, I don't know, maybe just behind Angel. Really? Wow. In my Lubitsch rankings and up there and probably my favorites of all time up there. Oh, wow. Uh, I just, I just, I, for what it is on its own and for what it means like for Lubitsch's career and like just what it took out of him to like get it made how he like literally was 
on death's door making this film that is somehow miraculously so alive and light yeah. on its feet is just remarkable. like it, it really is remarkable it blows me away and jennifer jones another actor again he's this actor who i i mean i'm not a jennifer jones expert but she's a, a jennifer jones that you you do not see in any other jennifer jones film it is something yeah. So totally unique in her filmography, I think. It's such a beautiful, light, sort of uh, oh. endearing quality to her. It's effervescent, it's yeah. innocent, but it's also, I mean, but her character is so tragically sure of herself. And it is a tragedy that she is so sure of, her, sure of herself because the rest of the world doesn't want her to be what she knows she is. Yeah. And that it's I'm it is so amazing. The scene how... where she's having tea and she like thinks they want to talk to her because she's someone important, and then she realizes the moment where she realizes like, oh, they only see me as a maid. It's like it's heartbreaking. It's, it's so heartbreaking. I could cry every time I see that. As well as the birthday party scene where she goes to fix the the, the pipe. Yes, and she comes out thinking she's going to be this hero who saved the party and they couldn't be more disgusted with her. I mean, yeah. we talk about, we've talked about Lubitsch as an artist who was celebrated for what he brought to the system, but also, also knowing that he also was a rebel in the system as well. Mm. There's, I mean, there's, there's so parallels, many. Clear. Well, I mean, there's so many brilliant parallels in his filmography, but I think Clooney Brown is one of the most poignant, mm -hmm. perhaps because it came at the end of his life. Yeah. Uh, and so remarkably juxtaposed in this young, like, character so full of life, it makes that also kind of more tragic. Um, Absolutely. It's like you, you see almost like you're you're rooting for her so much because she has that, like, spirit, and it's like every, every like, chisel at that spirit, it's like... Yeah, and you, and you and you so you're just along for the ride as um, Charles Boyer's character this whole time, who, and it, and it is such it's such an amazing like balance that Lubitsch is, Lubitsch achieves because you both identify with Jennifer Jones, you identify with Clooney Brown, yeah, and her struggle to like be seen for who she wants to be, mm -hmm. but you are also identifying with Charles Boyer because we also desperately want. Clooney Brown to be seen exactly. the way she wants to be seen. We are both, we're, we're so, I think, so able to easily lock in with each of them. Yeah. Which is so, which I, which is an amazing achievement. Well, it's a testament, yeah, to balance audience sympathy. Yeah. That's perfect word, but with both these characters, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it is really remarkable. Like, talk a little bit about, more about the sort of the struggle that went into making Clooney Brown as like one of these final films in Lubitsch's very illustrious yeah. <laughs> I mean, career. I guess this will be our chance to talk about Heaven Can Wait briefly because Heaven Can Wait essentially is the the starting point of this long struggle to get these final films made. Yeah. He had a series of heart attacks, the first of which came immediate, pretty much immediately after Heaven Can Wait was released. Mm -hmm. And they really just depleted him uh, he was able to bounce back less quickly after each one, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so he had a film that he directed most of, 
come out in 1945 with Tallulah Bankhead. Royal uh, I, I mean, I, I struggle to bring myself to watch them. <laughs> and it's like he's not even credited. I, I was like looking desperately through his filmography. He's not credited for a royal scandal. But uh, Lady Nermine, he's partially, at least on Letterboxd, he's partially credited. But so the 1945 film with Jalila Bankhead, he was not credited for, even though he shot most of it. And like Clooney Brown came shortly after that. He was able to just sort of miraculously rally for Clooney Brown. Mm-hmm. And sort of like we were saying, Thing. It's sort of as a testament to like just the, the the way the film feels and what it's about is sort of a testament to just like how close he was to the end of his life. Yeah. Just how alive it is really speaks to how close he was to death. Um, and he he suffered a, a few other heart attacks kind of after that film and really barely made it through Clooney Brown and wanted and 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 was somehow you know still behind the on the behind the camera for mm-hmm. that lady and Ermine but really he he I mean he died in the middle of filming and Otto Preminger had to had to finish and was credited to both of them but um th- those other two films having not seen I haven't seen them but from everything I've read about them they do sort of they they lack the touch for for want of a better word they lack that sort of Lubitsch magic that a director like Otto Preminger is really not suited to like even it's not even remotely close like, yeah like why why i guess who so yeah so clooney brown really is just like clooney brown shouldn't exist yeah given what happened on the films yeah. immediately before and after it's remarkable that it exists at all and the fact that it is as good as it is is even more remarkable well it's poignant it's like this one sp- final spark of of that lubich magic yeah, you wish <laughs> there was more of. I know when. I mean, what it, what could be more fitting than the film literally ending on a Lubitsch touch? Yeah, it, it ends on a quintessential Lubitsch touch of a dialogue, or at least I mean, you can see them talking, but it's dialogue-free, mm-hmm. full of innuendo, and then they sort of walk into the distance, at the, you know, looking out of the bookstore. It's like it's it couldn't be more perfect. It's the the poignant way to end i know when he died i know i think it was billy wilder who said you know disappointing there's no more lubitsch films not just no more lubitsch no more lubitsch films and just like what a yeah. loss to yeah no it's true <laughs> loss someone, someone who really should have been making movies into the late 60s he yeah. really should have absolutely you can only imagine too with the way you know morality changed and public taste changed how how he could have sort of adapted to that and yeah i mean it's i think it'll be it's sort of one of those endless questions that historians will have is like how would have lubitsch been post code i mean and even into the 50s when like it was sort of loosening up although the 50s have been there that decade has its own sort of conservatism but you know as you know just as in general as time goes on things loosened up but um but yeah so i mean it, it is I don't know if I, I th- that sort of speculative uh, history is tough. I, it's hard, I, yeah. You never know, but like there's there's ever, there's an equal chance that he could have just gone on being as incredible as he was, yeah. As there is like it could they, his films really could have faltered. So I guess finally, obviously, Lubitsch inspired you know generations of directors, and Billy Wilder he famously had a sign in his office. I think it said you know how would Lubitsch do it, and he would refer to it whenever he was sort of like tripped up on a, a story or a character. And 
what do you think is his biggest impact on classical Hollywood cinema and also the cinema of today? That is, I, that's such a hard question, but I think, I mean, to me, Lubitsch was, I mean, if we're, stay with me on this, if we're going to go from maybe the the sort of problematic self-centered, like American assumption that classic Hollywood sort of was the, 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 sort of the genesis of 95% of like sort of contemporary filmmaking standards that even exist today, whether mm-hmm. it's like through plot structure and like shot construction, like if we're good, if let's, we'll just assume we're starting as that. Yeah. And the, the, the classic Hollywood system being the, the starting point for that. Then Lubitsch, in I think in my opinion, must and has no choice but to represent any sort of conscious artistic effort to deviate from that and to subvert it. He must represent it because he, do, he in my opinion, does it better than anyone ever did in classic Hollywood. So it, it's sort of like a some big assumptions in this kind of statement, I guess. But I don't I don't think they're unsound assumptions. There's there's wiggle room in them, but I think they're I think they're sort of sound assumptions to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's what Lubitsch represents. It's what Lubitsch represents to me. He rep- he he just represents any he represents the best of like artistic rebellion done with supreme class and sophistication and wit and good humor and like generous like generosity and forgiveness and like yeah he's just the absolute best i mean he set the standard and then he's constantly surpassed it well yeah yeah he's yeah again the the through line of this conversation has been like he's the guy who has is heralded as having set the standards for classic hollywood Mm -hmm. yet he is also the man who at every sort of turn in his career was trying to get around the very standards of classic the classic hollywood system yeah he is his career is a contradiction his whole career is a contradiction yet it is so perfect i think that's the perfect way to end this conversation so i want to thank chris again for joining me on this i had such a blast talking (laughs) to you about lubit thank you for having me it was exactly what i needed and now i'm gonna go watch clooney brown (laughs) sounds good That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye bye! <laughs>